Romans chapter 11. How the gospel is, in these chapters, transitioning from the nation of Israel and God dealing with the Jew uh, into the Gentile church, and then transitions back. Chapter 9, we find out what happened to the Jew that got him in the mess that he lost all that God had for him. Then in chapter 10, we see it coming to the Gentiles. And then in chapter 11, it goes back to the Jew after God deals with the church and, and how it all puts together. A great uh, defining chapter on, uh, on defining what God is doing. I think chapter 10 is probably uh, the, the key part in chapter for you and for me as far as uh, dealing with the aspect of understanding salvation. I told you last week, we, we looked at a great story about the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip and how that the story there is connected with a, a prepared sinner, the Ethiopian eunuch, who God had got him everything that he needed to hear the gospel, but he needed one thing left. He needed some man to help him open the Scriptures and understand him, and then we looked at Philip. And I talked about the two aspects that, that God has, and God gave, started to begin to give you a perspective of God uh, in the church age, and that is a prepared servant and a prepared sinner. Remember I told you last week that God has more prepared sinners than he's got prepared servants. And that's what chapter 10 is really about. When you lead someone to Christ in time, and that should be the goal of everybody in here, and we talked about all of that last week, uh, your goal ought to be to come to the point where uh, God uses you to open up the Scriptures and, and lead someone to Christ. Whenever that happens in your life, you're going to find that Romans chapter 10 is your base key chapter. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And last week, you remember, we, we read Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 8. And I showed you in preparation for this week how the Bible says that Christ is the end of the law for everyone that believeth. We talked about how that the old, we talked about again Thursday night in Bible study, how that the law, uh, Christ fulfilled the law, and he did with the law what you and I could not do, and that is to keep the law. And therefore, by his righteousness, uh, we get, uh, that's how we get saved. We compared then the righteousness of the law, which was, could not save anybody, and we looked at the righteousness which is in Christ is how you and I got saved. Then we looked at the last part of verse 8, and we talked about how that, uh, you know, the Word of God was nigh even in our mouth, and uh, how that we talked about the availability of the Word of God, how God brought the Bible to us, that there's no excuse anywhere on this planet for a man or a woman anywhere not to be saved, other than the fact that I don't want to. We talked about the aspect in defining the word preaching and means, simply means telling the story of Christ. And then we talked about the, how soul winning comes about in your life through the intimacy of your own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that you bear fruit. We talked about your ordination as a saved man or woman. How that the Bible says in John chapter 15 verse 16 that God has ordained you not to be a pastor but to be a soul winner. He says, I've ordained you that you go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And we talked about how all important that is in our life. Now, today we're going to move on in the next little section here, and we're going to begin reading in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13. And, and here's what it says. And this is where the real, the real uh, message comes in today for you and for me and, and learning and understanding about winning people to Christ. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus... And shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. 
For the shame, Lord, over all was rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Father, we come to you today, and Lord, I ask you to uh, take over this service and uh, to take the words and, that I have to say. And Holy Spirit of God, I pray that uh, you'll use it today uh, to touch the hearts and the lives of, of, of your people. And Lord, these people have grown. They've come to the point where they have, Lord, literally uh, transformed their lives, many of them, uh, and, and are learning more every day about you and the Bible. And Lord, winning people to Christ, and, and more importantly, understanding uh, what is behind uh, leading someone to Christ is so very important. And I look at today, Lord, as, a, as, a, as probably a, one of the greatest things we've ever done uh, in the aspect of helping people get ready for that point and understanding it themselves. So, Lord, lead us today. We thank you for this great passage. We ask you that your grace would be on us today. And, Lord, uh, I, I don't know anybody's heart today, and, uh, but, Lord, I would ask you if there would be a, a man or a woman here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior, that today would be the day, Father, that they would uh, trust him and ask him. Uh, and, Lord, we just trust you for all of that. Bless us now. Give us insight, Holy Spirit of God. Forgive us where we failed thee and hide us under your blood and give us all that we need today to be everything that God uh, wants us to be. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I think the, the hallmark today, and you know, we know because of our, all of our other studies, we know where we're at in church history. We've talked about it, hardly a Bible study and, or a Sunday doesn't go by that we don't make some kind of reference to it. We know that we're in the Laodicean church period. We know from our studies that there's seven uh, periods of church history starting in the book of Acts and running right up to the rapture of the church. And we know that we're in the last one, which is called Laodicea, which means rights of the people or justice of the people. And yet, I, I think probably the hallmark of the Laodicean church period is really one word, and it's the word confusion. And I want today for you here, uh, this is more of a message to show you who are at that point in your life that you're going to obviously be used of God greatly in this ministry. Uh, it doesn't take anybody with an with a IQ above subplant life to, to, to see God's hand on what we're doing here. Uh, people are being saved. You know, you're, you, you people through the, the athletic ministry and the couples ministry, uh, you know, connected with that and everything that we do and the older folks that are involved in people's lives, I, I don't know what to tell you. It's, uh, it's coming almost faster than we can... Uh, we can deal with it. And that's why, uh, I, I, and I, I teach all the time, you know, I was telling Brian when he was here, you know, your church, a church can't go any higher than it spreads out in the base. And when you get something that's really high but have no base that, that mathematically equates to the height, it becomes top-heavy. And sooner or later, it's going to topple over. And I believe that true biblical spiritual growth, whether it's in your life or any church, bases on you can't go any higher than your base goes out. It forms the foundation. And so this today uh, in Romans chapter 10 is going to be dealing with uh, the aspect of winning people to Christ. When sit, and when you understand, when you sit down with somebody, what you've got to know. There's basically three things you better have in your mind firmly ingrained when you open up those scriptures to show somebody how to be saved. But I also want you to see why that there's so many problems with that today. So before I can get to that point, I've got to kind of lay a little, little foundation for us here that we can better grasp uh, what's taking place. I told you that the mark of the Laodicean church today is confusion. Why is that? Anybody knows that 
if you know anything about life at all on planet Earth, we are heading into uh, the time of, of the Antichrist. We may not see it. We probably will be raptured out before it all unfolds. But we are heading into that period of time. And what you're seeing around us is the formulation for all of that. And the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes, his kingdom that he establishes is Babylon, mystery religion, the mother of harlots. You know what the word Babylon means? It means confusion. In other words, the Antichrist is going to completely confuse this world. And once he confuses the world, then it's easy to deceive the world. And that's why, uh, you know, you're starting to see around you right now. If Babylon means confusion, and it does, it only stands the reason as we approach that time and that day that the church will lose its purpose and lose its perspective and lose its passion. And when it loses all of that, it loses its power. And it becomes confused. I think uh, one of the greatest verses in the Bible for me, and everybody has verses that mean something to them because of past relationship, but I think the greatest verse in the Bible for me as a pastor or as a Christian to keep my perspective is found in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, one of those little obscure minor prophets back there in the Bible. And Haggai says in Haggai chapter 2 verse 3, he talks about the fact that the problem with Israel Now, Haggai writes this when Israel's in deep apostasy. And they're trying to get back to God, but it's almost impossible now because of all the things that have happened. And Haggai Haggai says there, he says, the problem you have, and I'm kind of paraphrasing now, he says, the problem that you have is you have nothing to compare it to. He says, you're sitting here in the middle of this captivity and all of the mess that we're in, trying to build something for God, and yet you do not remember what it was like when Israel was at its glory. When God's hand was everywhere in Israel to be seen around the world. And he says the problem with Israel in this time in Haggai is the fact they have no reference point. They, they don't know what's really real because they've lost the point of reference in their own history of something that God was doing with their nation that was really real. Now I want to tell you something. And I'm really not going to preach to you today. I'm going to try not to anyhow. Because I want you to see these things. Because what I'm trying to do is give you a mindset. If you kind of notice, we kind of cut the early ser- cut the service a little short this morning. Because I wanted plenty of time to be developed. In. I don't want to have to break this down into two sermons and come back next week. And I got a lot of things here uh, that I want to talk about. Because uh, you need to learn not only how to lead someone to Christ. But you need to understand the, the world that you live in today and a little bit understand why it is that way. And uh, I, I look at my life, and I'm so thankful that, that one of the things that, that Haggai chapter 2 does for me is the fact that I, I, I was born in a period of time, and God orchestrated the events in my life where I saw the comparison. I saw the churches that really understood the mission of God compared to the churches that don't understand it today. I came up in a time where men still believed the Bible was the Word of God and and preached it like they believed it. I told you a couple of weeks ago how fortunate I felt I was because of the men of the Word of God who, who, who really understood the Bible and could communicate the Bible and preach the Bible. We don't have that today. I'm sorry. I'm sorry we don't. I'm not saying that you won't find some people out there, but you're going to have to look a long time. You see, the devil's plan has always been very simple. Down through history... He adds, he counterfeits, he uses misinformation, and he sows confusion and therefore thereby uh, deceiving people. The devil has learned, and you see this with Israel. 
The devil has learned to take the very things that God has given man to help man fulfill the plan of God and then turn them around that they become great tools in the devil's hands. Where do you see that better than the nation of Israel? The nation of Israel was God's nation. We studied in basic Bible class. We talked about how that God brought them out and developed them for one purpose, to reach the world. And then the very institution that God ordained and called out to reach the world at the end of the time when they go into captivity has now become the number one tool in the devil's tool belt to destroy the world. The very institution that God called and put into play to do what God wanted to do gets turned around and used for the purpose of the devil. And we find the church is the same way. The parallels between the nation of Israel and the body of Christ, the church today, are quite incredible. And uh, the devil has learned to take the very things that God has set up for man's salvation and then turn them into ruin. You know, you probably are not aware of this. Maybe you are. With all of the drugs, with all of the ungodliness that the unsaved world is into today, with all the filthiness and all the vileness of the world from the deepest, dredges, darkness of this world, and any place in it you want to go, cannot compare with the souls that are dumped into hell compared to the churches today who have hundreds of thousands of people under their preaching today who preach a message that will send you straight to the bottomless pit. The devil has done it in the church. He's taken the very institution that God has established for the souls of men and used it for the ruin and the damnation of men. There's many warnings about this in the Bible, isn't there? I think the greatest warnings found in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, where he basically, Paul talks about the fact that he's, he's, he's worried about the church, that they'll be beguiled, that the devil will take from them the simplicity that's in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly what the devil has done. Many examples throughout the whole Bible. But we're in the book of Romans. And I want to stay within that book and, show, and, and keep talking about the two main areas that we've been following through because that's all we really need to do today to understand this. And we have been talking about and studying God dealing with the nation of Israel. We saw it all through the early book of Romans. When we were those that have come through Bible Institute, we saw it in Institute when we come through the book of Acts and Bible Basics. I really laid it out in the Old Testament for you. And I've showed you that God's institution in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel. And God had a mission for them. God had something that He wanted to accomplish and to simplify it. Basically, He wanted the nation of Israel in the Old Testament to be the salvation of the world. God was going to work through that nation to bring salvation to the whole world. In the New Testament, we're studying it right now, going from 9, 10 to 11 in the book of Romans, it's the church. God's plan for you and for me is to be the body of Christ, to be the embodiment of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of God, that just like in the Old Testament scenario, God worked through the nation of Israel. In the New Testament scenario, He works through the body of Christ to reach the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's His plan. That was His plan. And what we have here in Romans chapter 10, it shows us the element that it takes for the church that they have to understand to be able to win someone to Christ in the church age. 
If you're ever faced with a scenario where God puts you into a situation where you are facing a lost person who wants to be saved, they won't get saved by, by any other reason or any other way than you opening up your Bible, taking the clear, plan, simple salvation message of Romans chapter 10, and then leading them to the Christ, much like Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch. But, given the day and age that we live in today, there's three things in Romans that you need to understand, and we're going to get there in just a moment. You know, the history of the New Testament church is a very in-depth and complicated subject to study. It really is. But in time, uh, it's an absolute necessity for any true child of God. If you're ever going to fully understand everything that God has for you, you're going to have to be able to put yourself in a context. And I'm not just talking about a context of, 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 of life. You're going to have to be able to put yourself in a context of, of history. You cannot... And I know, you know, right now we're still relatively a young church, and I understand that. But I'm going to tell you this. In time, in time, in time, the, uh, the, the leadership of this church will come to the forefront of not those who just understand a lot of things about the Bible, but it will come to the forefront of men who understand not only the Bible, but the history that goes along with the Bible. Hey, the Bible is God's infallible word. There's no question about that. But what makes that Bible even more infallible is the history that goes along with it. Because you cannot separate God and history from the Bible. And I know most Christians, you know, think they can. And maybe not today, because like I said, we're still a young church. But certainly in the future, the leadership of this church will be based on the history you know and the Bible that goes along with it, because you cannot separate the two together. Understanding that correlation. And, you know, we've got a few guys who can do it. John Busquet is great at church history. Bob's good at church history. And I know John in the past has taken people that wanted to come up and, and study church history. And, you know, and, and there's certain guys that, 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 are, that, that have been around long enough. You know, Bob's not been here, but Bob's been listening. Bob's been brainwashed with my tape for how many years, Bob? Fifteen years. That's a, that's a curse of God on your soul, I do believe. <laughs> well, I can't really... You want to hear one worse than that? Ter- Terrence told me this morning, he said, he said, good to see you. I said, like I've been with you all day, all week, because I, yeah, I guess on the Ford line up there, you just listen to me all day long, huh? No wonder them Fords are coming off with the bumpers on the front, should be on the back, the radio's upside down. Blame it on me, I get blamed for everything anyhow. <clears throat> At some point in our lives, the leadership of this church and I already see it because many of you, you know, you've caught the vision. You, you know, and, and I could have a class in church history, and I probably will at some point. But you know what? There's only so much a class can do. Sooner or later, the real men who understand it have to get the books and the material and dig down and get it. I mean, it just, it's, like, it's like the gold rush in the 1800s. There was a rush out there because of the fact they found gold. And they were, they were staking their claims on puddles and ponds and streams. And everybody was, flew from the East Coast to the West Coast in California because there's gold in them our hills. And you know what? There's gold in this book in history. And you've got to do the same thing they did. You've got to go find yourself where the water's running, word of God, get your shovel, put in the dirt, picture of the world, and then you know what you do? You shake it under the water, don't you? And you know what goes through? The world drips through, the dirt drips through, and what do you got left when you're done? 
you write that down. I just thought of that. That's a really good thing. I'm going to use that later sometime. <laughs> Everything in the history of this world is shaped by either in the Old Testament, God and the history of Israel, or the New Testament, the Word of God and the history of the church. You know, the history of Europe is a very complicated thing. I mean, you get into the kings of England, the kings of France, and oh boy, it can, you know, I, when I tell people when I church, to teach church history, which I do it pretty in-depth, I'll say I, I'll try not to be as boring as the guys that I taught me because, boy, I'll tell you what, there's some stuff you've got to wade through. But you know, in the bottom line, the history of Europe is nothing more than a study of the Holy Spirit of God moving through the nations, to God accomplishing His purpose. And I talked about how that, uh, you know, the devil takes the plan of God in the Old Testament and turns it around and he uses it. And the devil takes the plan of God in the New Testament and turns it around and uses it. And if you, if you look at that, you think, well, God just kind of got shut out, didn't he? Boy, the devil got one up on God. It never works that way. God's always plan is always moving. I'll show you here in a moment. But the history of Europe is a study of the of history of the Holy Spirit of God moving down through the nations to accomplish His purpose. The Word of God coming into being, the Word of God rising to its prominence, and then the Word of God fading off the scene. But if you looked at a history of Europe, you'd find that all music, all aquaculture, I told you this Thursday night, all inventions, all science, all discoveries, all, all literature, it all rises and falls on what that nation believed about the Bible. History of America is no different. I told you Thursday night, our Pilgrim Fathers, you know, coming up on Thanksgiving here in November in 1620, they landed at Plymouth. And we know we talk about the little pilgrims, you know, and get the little funny hats on, and we all eat turkey because we think that's what they had for the first dinner, which they didn't. And in fact, they almost started death the first Thanksgiving, but uh, we missed the point of Thanksgiving like everything else. Their Thanksgiving was the, you know what their Thanksgiving was about? The Pilgrim Fathers came here from Europe. They came from Holland. They were Holland, Dutch, Baptist, and Puritans. And you know why they came to this America? Because they had been persecuted and not, not a one of them. Every one of them had lost some relative or some family member to the Inquisition somewhere in Europe of a religious state that wanted to kill them because they believed the Bible. And when they came to, came to America, they weren't coming uh, to build skyscrapers and open up old navies and open up uh, ice cream places, though I'm glad they did. They, they didn't come to open up Walmarts and Kresge's and, and, and Penny's. And, uh, they came searching religious freedom where they could teach the Bible to their families without somebody locking them up and killing them. That's what they were thankful for. Well, we turn that around, don't we? I always enjoy when you go to somebody's Thanksgiving, you know, and they sit around the room. And I remember one time my brother-in-law took me to a, to a, uh, and he, he's not saved, and he was a Lutheran at that point, and I was working for him. This is when I lived in Ohio. I wasn't even in the ministry yet. And he took me to a, and I was working for him in his grocery store. I was a produce manager. Every Monday morning, boy, I'd get the fruits and vegetables up and get them going. I figured I could do anything with the Bible. I'd get that old dead lettuce back there, you know, and you take old dead lettuce, it's brown, and put it under cold water, it comes back. And I'd sing spiritual songs to him. I'd get that old dead lettuce under the water, and I'd sing, revive us again. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> let us pray. Get it? Let us pray, make a good solid. And he took me to this, he took me to this, this uh, he took me to this uh, thing that they had, and on a plate, they were having dinner, and all they had was three little pieces of corn, not ears of corn, three little kernels of corn. And uh, the, the guy told us, he says, this is what the pilgrims really ate the first time. Well, I don't know if they did or not. But uh, it, I've used it in our Thanksgiving many, many times, and I always get boo-haws, you know, from the, and they laugh at me. But, uh, and the pastor said, he says, let's go around the room. Let's all bow our heads. I love these sessions. You know, and all the thing was missing was hold hands and kumbaya. He says, let's go around the room. And let's everybody tell what we're thankful for today. 
And I was sitting next to my brother-in-law. And I felt him tense just a little bit. <laughs> so they started around there. This guy was thankful for his family. That's good. This guy was thankful for something else. That's good. Somebody was thankful that we lived in the abundance of America and we have this and we don't have to eat this corn that they had to eat. That's good. I'm with you all the way. And I'm sitting there, you know, and I, you know, and, and I didn't have a lot of grace back then. I probably don't have a lot of grace now. But, but I, I'm sitting back there, and I, and I was a lot like some of you. I was looking for any shot to get my, get my, get my way in. So I, he came around to me, and I came around the thing here, you know, and, and, and it was on my turn, and I just said, Lord, I'm just thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, that cleanses us from all sin. And I mean, you talk about quiet as a turkey farm day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> and then I really felt my brother-in-law go off into Bolivia, you know. But you know what? They, they, they came looking for religious freedom. Now, when you look at, at, at this country and America as a nation, one of the most amazing studies that I've ever took in my life, and I spent 10 years of my life investigating history, church history and all aspects of history. And I, and I, and I, and I say that, but really my quest of history has been a, a 35, almost 40-year endeavor. I intensely sat down for 10 years and broke it down, but it's like anything else. You never stop learning, and you're always studying. And, uh, you know, I've learned that every day in life I want to learn something. And uh, multiple things if I can, but I, you know, I'm not the kind of guy that can chew gum and walk, so I've got to take things slow. But, but I want to keep learning, and I'll tell you. Uh, about eight or nine, well, more than that, about maybe 12, 15 years ago, I began to look at this thing, and out of my studies of history, an amazing study, uh, probably one of the most amazing studies that I ever took, uh, uh, came to light. You remember I showed you Thursday night. I showed you Thursday night how Daniel chapter 2 lays out the Gentile nations, and then Daniel chapter 7 uh, brings in the nations in the New Testament by which the, the Antichrist is going, or the, the Gentiles are going to run the world. And I showed you from Babylon, then I showed you Persia, then I showed you the Greeks, then I showed you the Roman Empire, and then I showed you from that comes England, then I showed you from that comes uh, Russia, and then I showed you from that comes the United States. And God had plans for the United States. God had plans for Israel too, oh, didn't he, huh? One of the greatest parallels I've ever found that opened up the door of understanding winning people to Christ was understanding the parallels between those two great nations. Do you realize that those two nations, and I, let me tell you what I believe. I believe that the nation of Israel was God's nation by which he was going to run the world. I believe when they rejected God and they went into the times of the Gentiles and the church age come in, I believe God looks way down the future. And I believe God saw for the end times once England, who brought the word of God around the world, when she ran her course, God needed another nation that was free from the persecution of Europe, that, was, that could develop itself and build itself and become the greatest single nation on this planet for carrying out the gospel and the Great Commission right up to the second coming of Christ. Personally, I believe that was the United States of America. And I'll show you why I believe that. But unfortunately, just like the nation of Israel, the devil got a hold of America, and America, like Israel, failed to fulfill. Watch this. Watch this. Watch this. Both nations, both the United States and the nation of Israel, were in the plan of God. One of them was at the plan of God right before the first coming of Christ. The other one was key in the plan of God right before the second coming of Christ. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Both at their beginning are founded on the Bible and its principles. 
the nation of Israel was founded basically on the Ten Commandments. You know, when we, when we formed our country in 1776 with a Declaration of Independence, and I alluded to this last Sunday, I do believe, when uh, John Adams, who was, give, who was entrusted with the job of coming up with a Constitution or a, a Declaration of Independence, he got a hold of Thomas Jefferson. Now keep in mind, Thomas Jefferson was an unsaved man. He wasn't a Christian. Many of our founding fathers were saved people. Some of them were not. George Washington, the father of our country, was not a Christian. He was a deitist. And Thomas Jefferson was, was not a Christian. And so when he, when he put the basic concept of our Declaration of Independence together, he brought it back to John Adams. And John Adams took it to the other guys. They looked at it and they said, you know what? It's okay, but the bottom line is this. There's only one reference to God in this. And they said, we as a nation can never forget what God has done for us. So they sent it back to Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Jefferson put three more references to God. <clears throat> and in, in doing that, <clears throat> without anybody ever understanding or seeing it, by doing that, just like they had the Ten Commandments back there at their beginning, those four references that Thomas Jefferson put into your and my Declaration of Independence formed the foundation for what this country believed. Do you know what they were? Well, I'll tell you what they were. The first reference that he gave to God was God as lawgiver in this country. The second reference he gave was God as creator. Now, I've got to stop here for just a second, and I don't want to get sidetracked today because I've got a long way to go. But it didn't say God as intelligent design. It says God as creator. They believed evolution hadn't come on the scene yet. Charles Darwin was still in a tree with his tail tucked in, hadn't become a, you know, he hadn't got to the point yet where he was doing his damnable work. They still believed that God was creator. The third point that was made in our Declaration of Independence was God as supreme judge. You know up to 1844, once we have our in the Declaration of Independence, and when we come up with our, our, our Constitution, every state, as they came into the Union, they had to form a Constitution, a state Constitution. You know almost up to the Civil War that a state could not come in if they didn't build their state Constitution on these four concepts. And it was in the Constitution that you could have no, no authority as a judge, as a governor, or any elected office if you did not believe that there was an eternal damnation someday that you were going to face and you were going to be held accountable for God for how you fulfilled your public office. Boy, do we need that today. You know what the fourth one was? God as protector. When we laid out our Declaration of Independence, it's built around four concepts of God. God as lawgiver, God as creator, God as supreme judge, and God as our protector. Both have the ability to take the Word of God to the ends of the earth. Did you ever notice this? Both experienced a civil war. Jeroboam and Rehoboam split the kingdom north and south, and in 1860 to 1865, we had a civil war that split our country north and south. Both use the Bible to form up their judicial system. I, I don't know if you, if you, and again, I'm not here to bore you with a lot of history lessons today, but I've got to set the stage before we get to where we've got to get. 
Because I want you to understand, part of dealing with any problem is an understanding the problem before you get into it. You know, our country, and most people don't know this, and our country, uh, we talk about the democracy, and you know, and uh, our country was not founded as a democracy. Our country was founded as a republic. And a republic is different from a democracy. A republic is simply the rule of a nation by elected officials who follow an unchanging rule of law. And in 1776, that unchanging rule of law, hello, was a King James 1611 authorized version. You didn't have 58,000 versions of the Bible back then. In 1776, you had two Bibles. You heard me tell the story if you walked into a, a Christian bookstore back in 1776. You know, walking down the street and there is a sign, ye old Christian bookstore. You walk in there and you say to the guy, I want to buy a Bible. And the guy says, well, we got two. Which one do you want? And he said, I, say, I don't know. What two do you got? He said, well, we got the Roman Catholic Douay Reims, or we have the King James 1611 authorized version. That's all you had. You see, back then it wasn't confusing, was it? But the devil made sure it got confusing, didn't it? You bet he did. He always does. A democracy is a majority rule, 51%. No absolute law, no Bible, popular vote. You can have split down the line and be terribly wrong, and 51% say it goes, it goes. I think it's interesting, and I don't know if you can even find a copy of this. I had one years ago, but it's called Blackstone Commentary on Law. And it was the standard law book on constitutional law from 1776 up into the 30s. And it said in that Blackstone commentary on law that a republic, the repu- a republic runs by, it's a system that the things that God has set down as law cannot be changed. In a republic, you go by, and when the Bible is the form, which it was, for your republic, then you look at the Bible and you see the things that God lays down as law. Homosexuality, same-sex marriages, see how it works? And those things are fixed in the Bible. And there's no argument about those. Now, you say, well, they sure argue about today. That's because everybody's confused. And what happens is, back then, it wasn't confusing. They only had one Bible to deal with. And in that Bible, it simply said, when God lays down a law, a republic can't change that. A republic can change the price of gas, export tariffs. Things that aren't covered in the Bible. But if the Bible says by man's blood, if man is shed, shall his blood capital punishment, you can't change that. You kill somebody, premeditated murder, you get it too. Those are things laid down in the Bible in a much more simplistic time. But oh, the devil made sure we didn't stay simplistic. He made sure we went ballistic. Noah Webster. Some of you buy that. We're out of them back there. I don't see it now. But we, we, we sell that 1828 edition of Noah Webster. And I know a lot of you buy it for the right reason what you look up words because it gives you the biblical definitions. Did you ever look at the front of your Webster's 1828? Did you ever? You know, Noah Webster was one of our founding fathers. I mean, you just didn't get a dictionary. You got a great church history lesson. Because in the front of that 1828 edition, He goes through and tells you about the founding fathers and what they believed and what they wrote down and how that this republic was based 
on the Word of God. It's one of the greatest things you'll ever find. But how many got them ever read that part? And I can't yell at you. I had mine 10 years before I even saw it was in there. You know what he says on page 12? He says, the Christian religion is the most important and one of the first things in which children under a free government ought to be instructed in. See, there wasn't any confusion back there, was there? He goes on to say on in, in page 12, when I speak of the Christian faith as the base of our government, I do not mean in this ecclesiastical establishment, a creed, a rites, a forms of worship, or ceremonies. I mean primitive Bible Christianity in its simplicity I was taught by Christ and the apostles. He made it clear that we're not talking about some great formulism in religion, but the clear, basic, simple teaching of the Bible like found in Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10. And you see, it was simple back then. You walk down the street now, boy, Jehovah Witnesses hit you on this side, morons hit you on this side, seven-day disadvantages hit you on this side, you go to the airport, the Harry Krishna guys get you on that side, and it's confusing. They weren't around back then. Jehovah Witnesses start about 1830, the seven-day disadvantages about 1840, the Mormons about 1835, and none of them were back there. You know why? Those are things that the devil brought in later to what? Confuse and deceive. They didn't have that problem back then. And the churches that they did have, they knew what they were. They would be the ecclesiastical establishments, the ones with creeds, the ones with rites, the ones with forms of worship, the ones with ceremonies. No, no. He said to the simplistic thing, like this. How much simpler does it get? The basement. He says in page 12, continuing. The relationship of American government to Bible Christianity is evident in the writings of the founding fathers of our republic and in the sermons preached by the American clergy. And he's referencing there George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, who by their preaching formed the idea, hey, these guys were unsaved. Noah Webster wasn't. Thomas Jefferson was. Adams was. Why, unsaved men had more reverence for God and more understanding of God than 99% of saved people today. You know why? It's confusing today. Oh, I grant you it's confusing. I do. I do. Looking back to our parallels, both nations fail to carry out their mission as a nation, and then in both cases, it gets carried on by a remnant. When Israel goes into captivity, 30 million Jews go into apostasy. God brings back a remnant, and it's that remnant that was in place looking for the first coming of Christ. <clears throat> in the church age, God started a church, brought it about. The devil reversed the process. The church goes into apostasy. And yet, just like the parallels of the nation of Israel, there's a remnant in the church age that is in power looking for Christ at the second coming of Christ. Good afternoon, Mrs. Remnant. Good afternoon, Mr. Remnant. Good afternoon, Mrs. Remnant. Mrs. Remnant, good to have you here today. Mr. Remnant, good to see you. Mr. Remnant, Mrs. Remnant, good all to see you. You are a remnant. Good to have you here today. Good remnant. Nice remnant sweater. 
That's a, that's a remnant sweater, isn't it? I'm going to get a tattoo on the back of my neck. You know, everybody's got them. Mine's going to say remnant. You say, is that a social thing? No. If the Lord doesn't come back and we get a little persecution, when they put my head down there to cut it off, the last thing I want him to see before he swacked me is I'm a remnant. <laughs> Confusing, isn't it? You ever notice how both nations reject Christ in much the same way? There was a remnant in Israel who knew who he was. But the body of Israel, what did they do? They took my Savior... They mutilated his body. They tortured him. They left marks on him. There's five marks on the Lord Jesus Christ that are clearly lined in the Bible, other than all the other stuff they did to him. And then they killed him and hung him on a tree, crucified him, and got rid of him. That was his own people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But in the midst of that great nation that was killing and getting rid of the one that God sent them, there was a remnant. Church age comes in, same thing. Don't miss the parallels of history where the nation of Israel got rid of his body when Jesus Christ revealed himself in the New Testament. He did it in the volume of a book. He gave us his mind in a book. The Bible says in John chapter 1, what is it, verse 12 or 14, and the word was made. What? Flesh. The Bible today is just as relevant as when his body was here at the first coming of Christ when he came to Israel. And just as Israel mutilated his body and got rid of him, the body of Christ today, not the world, the body of Christ today have mutilated this body and gotten rid of it. Oh, man. Israel was used to the devil to stop the plant, to try to stop Christ at the first coming of Christ. And America will be used to the devil to try to stop Christ coming at the second coming of Christ. It's just right there. Now, the problem today with all this confusion... And it's because we as God's people fail in two areas. One, we don't know who God is. We really don't. I mean, you know who He is intellectually, but if I give you a piece of paper and told you to write down the 21 names of God found in the Old Testament, and I wouldn't give it to all you young Christians, but if you've been around 10, 15, 20 years, you know, and you're Miss Spirituality, and you're Mr. Spiritual Guy, and I'd lay down and give you a piece of paper and tell you to write down the 21 names of God in the Old Testament for me, could you do it? And yet you're going to tell me you know him? Why, every one of those is an in-depth study in itself of a nature and a character of God. Incredible. We don't know God. And the second problem we have is we don't know what God said. And then we don't know what he meant when he said it. My greatest fear, I've studied Paul's life. Oh, to me, Paul is the model of what I need to try to be. And I have studied his life intently and, and, and for many, many years in my life. And I, I see Paul's greatest burden was, it's hard to decide if he was more burdened for the nation of Israel, his own flesh and blood people, and all that they missed and now what they're missing, or if he's more burdened for the churches that he's establishing because he knows that they're going to be deceived. He's over there in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he talks about travailing for them again. Somebody reads that and he says, well, what do you mean? What, how do you tra travail again? You know, he, he's saying this. He says, I, I worried about you to be saved. And when you got through that process, I travailed for you. I worried that you would not get saved and you got saved. Now that you are saved, I travail a second time. I travail and worry that you won't be everything God wants you to be. What an incredible mind he had. 
I'll tell you what, you want to be a pastor someday and you want to be effective with people, study his life. Study his life. Study his life. Incredible. Incredible. And yet my greatest fear of the day in which we live is just like Paul's. I feel that many of God's people today have deceived themselves. And this is why I want to talk to you this in relationship to salvation. If you've been around here any length of time, you pretty much know my stand on it. I've been asked many, many times in private one-on-one Bible studies when people come over, or even on Thursday night, how the devil is going to cover up about 800 million people that suddenly disappear in the rapture. Well, I've got to tell you something. I may give you my standard Thursday night answer just to get by it because I don't want to have too many heart or cardiac arrests in my Bible study because we don't have that many paramedics here. But the truth of the matter is this, ladies and gentlemen. I don't think there's a whole lot of people saved today that say they're saved. That's my own personal opinion based on 35 years of the Scriptures. That's my own personal opinion based on seeing the parallels between the nation of Israel. A nation who at its end and its demise had a form of godliness that if you'd have walked down there, you'd have thought was God was the number one thing in their world. And you know what? He was the farthest thing from them. And I see the parallels between where I'm at today and the latest in church and the confusion that you don't know, God, not you guys, but you, God, people don't know who God is and they don't know what he said. It, it, it bothers me. And I'm not preaching this this morning uh, any, as much as I am trying to lay out my heart to you who are at some point in time are going to be dealing with men and women in this church. And you're going to come to a point at some time that you're going to have to win them to Christ. You're going to have to open up the Scriptures. And there's four or five things you better understand before you try to do that. I saw a poll a couple of years ago that said that 80% of the America, Americans polled claimed they were Christians. Well, if that's true, there's really something wrong here. You know, when I grew up in Bible Christianity, I don't know how to tell you this, but this is my point of reference. I got saved in, right at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of 1970s. And that's not a long time. That's not ancient history. But even in that short space, the lines were very clear back then. When you got saved back then, you didn't keep on drinking and pretend you were saved. I don't know what to tell you. When you got saved back then, you didn't continue to do drugs and pretend that it was okay. You, when you got saved back then, you didn't go commit fornication or adultery and just think that, that that's just part of life's deal. There were some clear lines. I'm not saying people didn't continue to do those things, but it was never mixed in with Christianity. <laughs> the lines are all blurred today, Bob. They're gone. It's hard to find the, the, the line. In fact, I'll tell you what. I deal with people. Many of you deal with people. I'm not sure what is even sin anymore. There's days that I just agonize all week long on what I'm going to preach because it doesn't seem like those things are sin anymore. Confusing times we're living in.
My Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, and I'm just preaching the Bible this morning. I'm laying out my heart about what my worst fear is. Because I understand maybe better than you do what this world and where it's going and the deception that's around here. And I realize that probably 99.9999% of God's people are just like the nation of Israel. They, they have some kind of form of godliness, but there's nothing really real on the inside. And it's because they don't understand. They don't understand. They don't understand the basic concepts of salvation. And you need to understand them so that when you work with somebody, you don't get caught up in the same mess and you just, you just keep the confusion going. My Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, that if you're a child of God, male or female, and you live in sin continually and you keep doing things that are wrong, that there's going to be some chastisement in your life. And you know what it also says? It says if you continue on then, he says all, he says all, uh, all, all children of God are partakers of chastisement, but he says if you live your life and there is no chastisement, then he says you're a bastard and you're not a son. I love cussing when it's in the Bible. You know what a bastard is? It's a little legitimate child. It means you've never really been saved. I, I want to tell you this story. I know I got good time. Years, and this is, this, I hate saying these things because I don't want you guys doing them. But years ago, when I was full of zeal with no knowledge, they come out with a living Bible. And the living Bible uh, was, a, was a just, you can still buy them, I guess, but it was a monstrosity. And back in my Bible there where David's dealing with, uh, uh, I forget who he's dealing with, but uh, it says in the King James Bible, it says, thou art, oh, Saul says, thou art, a son of a, thou art a son of a rebellious woman. That's what the King James Bible says. The living Bible says, you're a son of a bitch. But don't get mad at me, I'm just quoting the Bible. Now back then I had no brains and a lot of zeal. And I had this Christian bookstore that hated the King James Bible and sold all these other translations. So I would look for opportunities. So one time at Christmas, we were standing in line, and I I do this. It cost me about a two hundred dollars, but it was I hope. But I stand in line, and you know you know what they do? All the new Bibles they put them right by the checkout. So I picked one up, and the manager was running the cash register. He didn't like me, and I didn't like him, because he knew I was King James, and and he I knew he wasn't. And I called them a Christian junk store. They sold everything for everybody. And one time I asked him, I said, do you, have, do you sell Chick Magazine? You know, Chick Magazines are, oh, you, want a, you want a juggler vein cut, they'll cut you and lead you to believe. He says, oh, we, we have them, we just keep them in the back. I said, oh, like those dirty movies they sell down here at the place. Huh? You don't have them, I don't think. So I'm standing in line. So I turn over there to First Samuel, First Camp, forget where it was. And I'm standing there, and there's all these prim and proper ladies buying all this nice Christian junk, you know. And I'm standing there in line, and it's a long line. And I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm open the Bible, and I'm saying, son of a bitch. <laughs> the lady next to me, she's, you know. <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Moving on down the line. Now this time, I said, really loud, I said, son of a bitch. The guy said, sir, you cannot talk that way in this Christian establishment. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just reading your Bible you're selling. What does it say right there? Oh, let me. 
Huh? Come on, someone man. I said, Are you a hair lip? What does it say? I said, Lady, what's it say? She said, Oh, 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 oh. See, back then I was a junkyard dog with a big chain. Now I'm just a poodle. Yeah, a little tail right there. I'm a poodle. <clears throat> when I grew up, the lines were clear, folks. And I, I'm confused as much as anybody else because I don't know what sin is anymore. Now, that's why, basically, you might as well know this. Some of you visitors coming in here, uh, checking out our church, you might as well know this is why this church will never hit four or 500. I had a 1,000 in my notes, but I figured that was a worthless stab. <laughs> It'll never hit four or 500. Never Dale, you're not leaving because you're mad, are you? Okay, I'll walk around. I can preach while I walk. Come on, we'll walk. We'll walk this up. Marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. I love you, buddy. You're on board, aren't you? No, I'm fine. I said you're on board. We're on board, yeah. Can you hit me here? Okay, okay. You say, boy, he's funny. Yeah, I got to set you up with something because I'm going to drop the bomb here in just a minute. Whether you know it or not, I'm about 13 minutes out of hitting Nagasaki and Hiroshima all at the same time. My job is clear and simple to me. My job is to hold the line in a Christian world that does not want the line held. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to make people mad when you do that. People are going to get mad when they do that. And you know what? I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. Find someplace else to go, I guess. But the bottom line is this, that is the job. I've had people get mad and leave the church because the lady one time, she said, well, I want to disciple somebody. I said, well, you've got some things in your life you need to get taken care of. And she said, well, I don't, I don't know why I can't disciple. I said, because I'm not going to put somebody in your world who has problems with maybe the same issues you have, and instead of you trying to help her, you just go out and have a nice time on Friday night. They got mad and left the church. You want to say that? I love the fact that we got two exits now, Steve. In fact, Greg McClintock brought up that point just the other day. He said, oh, I thought you put another exit in so they'd have two ways to get out. They didn't like what you preached. I said, that's a good point. I don't know what to tell you. I've had young men that when we put our deacons in, who, who and, and you know, if you that are deacons in here, I mean, everybody knows. Not only did I have a meeting with you and tell you what was expected of you, I put it on a CD, didn't I? And then about a year later, I gave you another CD back. And my question to you was simply this. Hey, you know what? I want to do this. I'm documenting this. And I'm giving you a CD of what I expect of you. And I'm giving you a week. It ain't like I got you a double hammer lock on. You got to be a deacon. You take a week, two weeks, and decide if you want to do it. But the bottom line is, understand, to whom much is given is much is required. And if you don't hold the line, I'm going to come to you and deal with you and talk to you. And the only question I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to get on you for what you're doing or what you're not doing. The only question I'm going to ask you is this. I'm going to bring a copy of the CD and I'm going to put it right in your face. I'm going to say, what part of this did you not understand? I'll tell you. So when it happens, they leave and get mad at me. You know what? A nasty job, but somebody's got to do it. I don't care. I don't care. You know, there's a world that has crept into Christianity. Contemporary. For those of you that don't like hard preaching, we have a contemporary service. And you come there, it's, a, it's toned down a bit. 
We want to we wanna reach everybody. Well, I want to reach everybody too, but I'm not under the illusion that shortcutting the message or changing the style of preaching is going to... When did Jesus ever shortcut his message so he could reach somebody to Christ? You know what? I don't, I don't understand it. But contemporary. And now, you know what? And now we have contemporary service. And we, with that, we have contemporary music. What you're saying is, you've got a worldly service and you brought in worldly music. You get pray, we, have, we have a praise band. What in the world? I must have missed that in the book of Acts. You know what most praise groups are? You sit down there, they stand up here, they hold a mic, and they sway back and forth and raise their hands, and they say, instead of saying, look at God, you know what they're saying? Look at me. I was like old Sabaka. He used to get on that. He used to be death on that. He used to get up there and he said, yeah, you like to take that, you take that microphone and sway back and forth, don't you? And he liked to, he said, you ever see that mic? Looks like a big old serpent. <laughs> I never have the guts to say that, so I just tell you he said it and you still get the message. <laughs> Nothing contemporary here. Our music, we sing the old songs out of the old hymns. You know why? There's a, it's a policy involved here. Number one, would you like it if I come up and I just give you some flimsy, flamsy, uh, noodly, little, mushy message on Sunday morning? Would you be happy with a message with no doctrine in it? Would you? Please say something because I'm sweating now. Well, you know what? My rule of thumb is this. Never have less doctrine in your music than you have when you're preaching. You say, yeah, you're old-fashioned. Yeah, and I'm staying that way. You say, well, you're stuck in the mud up to my elbows. We have churches now that they have Saturday night church services. You know why they do that? For lazy people who don't want to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. So we'll accommodate you. Now, I'm not against having a Saturday night Bible study or having a Saturday night whatever. But if you give the idea that you don't want to come on Sunday morning, that's okay. You can come Sunday, Saturday night and we'll still get her done. You know what? You don't want to have a problem with that? I know. It's just me. The Bible says on the first day of the week, not Saturday night. The first day of the week. You start giving human nature that light. You know what else we won't have? We won't have a big screen up here that has the, uh, has the, has the Bible verses on it. You know what you do when you give human nature that option? You'll quit bringing your Bible. I'm not going to make it easy for you. There's churches now, when they take up the offering, they do direct posit. <laughs> you don't even have to worry about it. It comes out, you're laughing. I'm telling you the truth. Bob, you've been around that true? Direct deposit. And you don't even have to worry about your offering anymore. When you get deposited your check, goes right to the church. Now, that's a good thing for churches. But see, to me, it ain't about money. There's something special. I, I would hope that you pray over what you give. I would hope that your offering to God isn't like your gas bill. I like the aspect that you sit there every Sunday morning and you put an envelope or whatever you do and, and consciously, when that plate comes by, you're, I hope you're saying, God, I love you, thank you for taking care of me and I want you to use this for the honor and glory of God and you drop it in. And I think it's good for all those ones you sit next to that don't ever put an envelope in. Kind of go like this next time.
Guy said to me one time, he says, uh, can I take one of these wide margin Bibles? And I said, sure. He says, he says uh, can I pay you for it uh, when I get the money? And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. He says, well, boy, he said, that was easy. He says, I could steal it. And I said, yeah, I know you could. I don't care. If it's in your heart to steal it, steal it. I don't care. You want to come in here? You got a key to this place? You want to raid the bookstore, raid the refrigerator, or do whatever you want to do? Help yourself. I don't care. Hey, my stuff you're stealing. And I'll, when we get to heaven, I'll be the one over there looking at you real funny like, mm -hmm. still got your key? I'm going to tell you something. It's confusing today. It's confusing today. And I made up my mind that the job of the church today is to hold the line. And it's not a popular position to take. And uh, it's, what the, it's the position the remnant has always took. And with all of that, ladies and gentlemen, here's my fear. And this is just my heart today. And you have, uh, my, my, my fear is, and I know God's people have been deceived and they deceive themselves. They deceive, here's my thing, now listen to me. Now this is where I'm coming from. God's people deceive themselves with drugs. They think they can do that and it's okay. They deceive themselves with booze. They can do that and they can still be a Christian. They deceive themselves with cigarettes and, and, and worldly living and all of the things that go along with it, fornication and all the stuff that goes with that. They, they, they deceive themselves into thinking I can do that and I can still be a Christian and I can still get along and have a relationship with God. I mean, come on, let me ask you a question. If you've deceived yourself in all this, what makes you think you didn't carry that deception right into your salvation? Where does the reality start and the deception stop? Can you even tell anymore? It's like a person who lies so much they don't know when they're telling the truth. Well, a person who deceives themselves totally doesn't know any reality anymore. And that's my fear. That's my fear. I think the greatest example of that is the book of 1 John. Every preacher, every commentator that I ever heard teach 1 John says that the theme of this book is love. I mean, you go by so-and-so's commentary and the theme of 1 John is love, not the gospel, the epistle. The theme of 1 John is love. <clears throat> you hear so-and-so get up <clears throat> on the radio and we're going to study the epistle of 1 John. Oh, what a great book it is. It's the book that it really is a book about love. I read the book one time. 27 times in five chapters, I found the word knowing. You think if you read that book, and you saw the one word or the root of that word 27 times in five little chapters, you might think that the key and the theme is not love, but the theme is knowing. You know that's exactly what's wrong with God's people today? You tried to love God before you got to know God. That answers so many questions. It answers why somebody shows up on a Sunday night, comes down and sells crocodile tears, gets saved, and then three weeks later, a month later, six months later, a year later, they're right back out in the world. And somebody says, well, I wonder what happened. I'll tell you what happened. They used God. They used God. They were in a jam. They were feeling bad. Something, catastrophe, unfolded in their life. Their wife left them. Good for her. I mean, the wife left them. They're going through some ecstatic, terrible time in their life. And they're reaching out. And they're reaching out. And they, they, they want something to make them feel better. And, and, and you come to church. And you show them the Bible. And they feel how bubbly everybody is. They leave with a good feeling. And then suddenly, once they get past the crisis, once they get feeling better, they don't need God anymore. That's how it works. It's exactly how it works. So why marriages fail? People get married today 
They don't know the person they're married. They fall in love. And when you fall in love, you fall out of love. And I'll tell you, my friend, it sums up the sorry condition of the 20 and 21st Christianity. We talk about loving God, but we never get to know God. And as somebody once said, to know Him is to love Him. We've forsaken God and His words, and just like Israel, and now only a remnant remains to hold the line. You know what bothers me? I spend too much time in the Bible. I know. For the world that I live in, I spend way too much time in the Bible. I can read back there in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18. And I look at Israel at the very worst, right before it all comes down, just like where we're at today. Now, in this time, there must be what? 20 million people in Israel, maybe? Maybe 30. At least 20 million people are making up the nation of Israel by the time 1 Kings comes rolling around. And everybody, everybody is, everybody is just in apostasy. And Elijah is so despairing because he's God's man. He's standing up and taking God's side and trying to tell people to do what's right. And they hate him for it. He's hold, trying to hold the line in the Old Testament like we hold the line in the New Testament. And they hate him. And he goes to God whining and crying. He says, God, he says, oh, boo-hoo-hoo, everybody's against me, and this whole nation is a mess. Oh, they talk about loving you, and they'll just do all kinds of things against you, and oh, Lord, it's so terrible. And God says, you know what, Elijah? I still have 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal and will not serve him. Well, that sounds good to preach, doesn't it? But you know what scares me? Out of 20 million people, only 7,000 were saved. You better mark that down. And the great anti-parallel to the United States of America or New Testament Christianity, looking at the Old Testament nation of Israel, 20, 30 million people. And out of 20, 30 million people, only 7,000. The rest had been deceived. And I guarantee you they're at the temple every Saturday. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. They're just living their life in the world and their life under the Old Testament law as they see fit. And they've deceived themselves just like God's people have today. And this is what you deal with when you win people to Christ. You need to know this. If any of you young men ever become a pastor, I feel sorry for you if you do. But good for you if you can stand it. But I'm going to tell you something. You better start studying the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets, once you understand the parallels between the nation of Israel and the church, you're going to find that uh, the Old Testament prophets did the exact same thing that you're going to have to do, and that is take God's side against the whole nation of people that claim to love God, that claim to be God's people, but deep down inside hate everything that God stands for. And you'll pay the tab for it. Hey, you ever been in a situation where somebody has or you found out about it later, that somebody has really, behind your back, assassinated your character, lied about you? Ever been in a situation where you found out later that somebody just really maligned you and just really, really just did a job on you? And then you come to the point where you find out that some of your friends were there. And you say to yourself, you know what? I wish one of my friends would have stood up for me. I wish one of my friends would have stood up and said, you know what, that's not true. And you know what, 
If you've got a problem with so-and-so, what are you telling us about it? We can't fix it. Come on, I'll take you. We'll go to him right now. We'll go to her right now, and we'll fix the problem. But, but that never happened, does it? Well, if you feel that way, and I feel that way, how must God feel? You know what his people say about him today who claim to be his people? They say he had an affair with Mary Magdalene, the prostitute. And you just let it slide, don't you? They say that he was an illegitimate bastard son of a German soldier or a Roman centurion. They say that, that he was a devil. They say, they say that he doesn't mean what he said or even knew what he said that, and, and all of the things they criticize him for. I may not ever do everything right in my life. And I got a lot of an issue just like you do. And I struggle every day to love God and to do what I'm supposed to do, what's right, and I struggle with it every day. But I want to tell you something. There is never a night that I have went to bed in the last 35 years of my life that I couldn't honestly look at God and say to God, God, I may not have done everything right today. I may have blew it big time today. But I want to tell you one thing. Never, never, never will I be in the presence of somebody who says something that is a lie about you and not take your part and stand up for you. That's what the ministry is today. It's taking God's part. It's saying to a world, that's not true. It's saying to the world, really? Show me that in the Bible. It's saying to the world, really? Well, you want to sit down and talk one-on-one -on -one and want to find out really what's on? You say, this is wrong teaching. Really? Come on. Pull out your six-shooter. Let's find out if it is or it isn't. Christianity. Every child of God in here, if you're truly saved, maybe you can't get there at this point in your life, but you need to get to the point where you take that stand for Him when you know they're lying against Him. And here lies the problem with understanding God's salvation. The deception is so great, the confusion is so great that we know that the Bible is the Word of God, we just don't know anything in it. And we know, we know God, but we don't know Him. We know, the, we know, we know, we know God, but we don't know Him in a way that uh, we need to know Him in that intimate way. And see, my job as pastor and your job as Christians as you work in the ministry of this church is to make sure every person who comes to a point in their life where they're not sure they're saved, that we make it clear and we understand what we are to do and understand how to do it. Now, there's three thick bings, things about Gentile salvation you need to know. And these are vital in you leading someone to Christ. If you're ever going to be that prepared servant, then here it is. You have to get these three things down and learn how to use them. If you don't, don't ever try to work with somebody. And the failure of Bible Christianity today and the source of our confusion and the reason why so many people who think that they're saved probably are really not is because nobody ever took the time either from the pulpit or one-on-one -on -one to deal with them and to show them and have them understand these three things. When I win somebody to Christ, I walk through these three things. If they are not willing to do the first thing, I don't bother going to the second and the third one. But you see, we want to win people to Christ so desperately, don't we? We're willing to shortcut the principles because we think that God overlooks them. He doesn't. He doesn't. There's a way to get saved, ladies and gentlemen, and then there's a couple of ways not to get saved. I'm going to show you both of them here in the minutes remaining. Now, the three things that you need to look at and understand 
The first one is simply the word repentance. The second one is understanding what the Bible means when it talks about a heart knowledge. And the third one is understanding what it means when the Bible talks about head knowledge. Now let's talk about repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. I think repentance is probably one of the most misunderstood words in all of the Bible. I, I never hear it preached anymore. I never hear it in uh, connection with salvation anymore. I, I really don't. And the standard idea is that repentance means you're sorry. So when you, when you, when you feel sorry, then you repented, you see. Well, you know, you can, you, can, you can be sorry without repenting. And the truth of the matter is, repentance in the Bible is never connected with being sorry. Never is. You get that because men don't believe the Bible, don't teach the Bible, and don't know the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 is the first time repent shows up in your Bible. And it's talking about God and Noah. And it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. See that thing in verse 6? It, and it repented the Lord that he had made man. And somebody reads that and says, well, that's God was sorry. A holy God who's perfect can never be sorry. <laughs> sorry is the equivalent of oops. God never goes oops, and God never goes I'm sorry. But when you get the idea that repentance is being sorry, then you read this passage and you think, oh, God was sorry. No, repentance never means sorry. Repentance means you turn from one direction you're going and then you now go in another direction. God had created man in Genesis chapter 6. Man had gotten evil. God says, it repents me that I made them. It wasn't that I'm sorry that I made them. It's now that I'm going to change the direction that I'm going because I ain't putting up with it anymore. You need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, this is the missing element. Repent never means sorry. It means a change of direction. It means that you're not going to go on with your lifestyle anymore, that whatever you're doing that you now is wrong in the Bible is you're going to stop doing it. You see the problem that brings into the 20 and 21st century Christianity? That one word there answers a million questions of why that is. When you see somebody out there, that person, they get saved and then they don't stay with it, or they get saved for a while and then they fall away, and you know, and you say, why is that? The reason is, almost in every case, they were not willing to get rid of the things in their life that they have to get rid of, and sooner or later, it's going to get you back. It's like swinging the English Channel. Some of you are great swimmers, and you can swim a mile back and forth faster than a speeding bullet. And you know what? I could put 20 pounds on your back or a weight belt on 20 pounds and you can still swim because you're strong. And you're powerful arm, powerful legs. You come back, I drop another 10 pounds on you. You swim. You struggle, but you're swimming and you get back. When you get back, I put 75 pounds on you and you know what? You drowned in three feet of water. The more weight you try to carry, the longer you try to carry it, i.e., the weight being the things in your life you need to get rid of, we'll come back and get you. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. A great lesson Israel didn't learn in the book of Joshua. 
And yet I've, I've, I've talked to people, and I've, I've talked to people in the last couple of weeks that, were, that claimed to be saved, living like the world, doing everything they want to do, yet giving God the glory for it. And I talked to one of them, and I said, I said, don't you see? And, they, and their answer to me was this. And this is the stupidity of, of, of where they're at. Their answer back to me was, well, how can you say that? Look, you say we're not doing what's right. We're saying that this is wrong or that's wrong. But you know what? Our business is running great. We got everything we could want. We got this. We got that. How in the world can you say that? How in the world can you say God is not in this when we have everything that we want? And I said, you know what? Your story reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about an old Midwestern evangelist who was preaching in a Midwestern town. And he was preaching every night. I mean, he preached hell so hot you could feel the heat. And he was just tearing them up and putting it down, and he was just letting them have it. And, and this, the, the richest man in town came every night. And the richest man in town sat on the front row with his arms crossed, listened to everything he said. And when people were coming down to get saved, the old boy just stood there with a smile on his face and his arms folded, and everybody in town knew he was lost. He was the most selfish, the richest, the most graft man in the whole town. And he sat there, and after five days of hearing that message, and the preacher preached his last message and gave the invitation. He sat there like a cigar store Indian, one last sermon. After when all everybody cleared out, he come up to that preacher. And he says, preacher, I got a question for you. And the preacher says, what is it? He says, I heard you preach every night this week. I've heard you preach about the world, about booze, about graft, about all this greed, about covetousness, and all the things you preached. And he says, I came to every service. And he said, I got one question for you. Here I am. I don't believe anything you've said. I don't even think I need God in my life. I'm a self-made man, preacher. And here it is, September. And my barns are full while others are starving. I got more money in the bank than anybody in this town. I own half of this town. I got crops everywhere. Half this town works for me. How do you explain in light of what you said about God is going to bring everything into account and deal with everybody on this planet in light of here I am, not believing what you said. Here it is in September. My fields are in. My barns are full. How do you explain that? And the old preacher never missed a slick. He went right back and he said, it's easy, pal. God don't settle accounts in September. Don't you think because it's going good in your life that that's God's hand in your life? Some of you go out of here and win the lottery this afternoon and you say, wow, God really blessed me. I watched football players last night make a touchdown. Uh, not many, but I watched him and then point like, thanks, God. I watched a kicker make a field goal and he goes. And the obvious answer to that is God's up in heaven going. Uh, it's confusing. The reason some of your children, and some of God's children, maybe not your children, but the reason why God's people's children, so many of them, are going to wind up in the lake of fire. And as deftly as the parents want to pretend in their heart that they're saved, 
as desperately as they want to tell everybody around them, oh, they're saved, they're saved, they're saved, they're saved. The bottom line is there is absolutely no desire in their life for anything spiritual. We've deceived ourselves. And parents aren't willing to do in the day. And parents aren't willing to do in the day and age that we do. Where do you stand there? Where do you stand there when that girl or that boy that you alibied and deceived yourself all your life that she said you were saved? And deep down inside, they're not saved. And you never one time did what you needed to do to find out if they was. And then in that day, you have to stand there and point the finger in your own child's face. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire and brimstone, prepared for the devil and his angels. What a day that's going to be. But the devil's got it all masked right now, doesn't he? Every time you feel that twinge deep down inside about a message like this, you just get some salve and put it over it and feel better about it. Right up to the great white throne judgment, you'll do that. Let me tell you something, parents. This is not a message on parents, but I'm going to throw this in. If you're a parent here this morning and you've got little children or big children or whatever children you got, you better learn one of the, you know, there's seven laws in your Bible. And those seven laws are absolute laws by which everything in this world runs by. They don't, they're not, they're absolute Nobody has to put them into power. They're in absolute. God put them in force a long time ago, and they run by the course of God Almighty Himself, and they're unchangeable. One of those we know from the scientific world, and every parent ought to know the second law of thermodynamics. You know what that's called? That's called the law of enthalpy. You know what that means? It means things don't run up, they run down. In the Bible, it's called the law of human collapse. You know what it means to you parents? Now, I know parents, you're not perfect. I was far from a perfect parent. There is no perfect parent. We're all going to do mistakes. We're all going to do dumb things. I think the number one problem parents have is they can't admit when they do a dumb thing, like a lot of pastors I know. You do something dumb with your kid, deal with it. No parent is perfect. But I want to tell you something. This is why I preach the way I preach, and this is why I put it out to you without a contemporary theme. This is why I lay it out to you, and I used to say for years and years and years, when you come to our church like a baseball game and I'm the pitcher, and I'm going to put it right across the plate waist high where you can swing at it. Let me tell you what the parents, what you parents need to know. It's the second law of thermodynamics. It's the law of, of human collapse. It's simply like this. Whatever you have in your life, whatever you have in your life, whatever it may be, that is something that you won't fix in your life. I'm not talking about your just general inconsistencies of life. We all have them. I'm talking about something in your life that you know is wrong, that you're not willing to give up. Whatever that is in your life, it will be magnified 50 times in your child's life. It doesn't get better. It just doesn't get worse. It gets 50 times worse. You smoke cigarettes, they'll smoke dope. You smoke dope, they'll get on heroin. I don't care what it is. You live a lifestyle where you don't think church is this or that, and they won't go to church at all. Whatever you have in your life that is the damaging thing that you're not willing to fix, the devil will make sure. He will not miss that detail. That way he will take that and he will magnify it in your child's life 30, 40, 50%. That's how parents lose their kids. Parents see them drinking beer, wine coolers in the refrigerator. I told you before the story of a guy that was the most tremendous alcoholic I ever met in my life. Never did get over it. You know where it started? It started because his dad sat down at night to drink a, watch television, and drink just one bottle of beer. Just one bottle. What's the big deal? I'll have one with you. And when he went to bed, that little four-year-old, three-year-old came down the steps, 
and drained the suds out of that beer bottle because they saw Daddy do it. Daddy was never an alcoholic. The kid was. If you think, if you think the devil won't get in your back door, I know you're not perfect. Nobody is. But you better take the things out of your life that you can do before the devil uses them against you. He used Israel, turned it around, made it the devil's tool. God gave us the church. Devil took it around, made it the devil's tool. He gave us the Christian family. He gave you children to raise in the nurturing of the Lord. And what do you do? You know what you do. Repentance is the key to salvation. You see, you all want to come to church today. I, I believe that. I can't even use you as a good example because you're all perfect. But the average Christian today, they want to go to church and hear a message, but they don't want the message to be convicting. They want to belong to a church, but they don't want to be held accountable. And we want to get saved. We just don't want to repent. We don't want to turn from where we are. We want the best of both worlds. And in the modern 20th century, Laodicean, confusion church age, you find a lot of pastors, a lot of churches help you right down the line with that. Now let's look at the second aspect. 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confess with thy mouth, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, and thou shalt be saved. Now verse 9 is a statement about how to be saved. But verse 10 is the definitive verse that defines the statement of verse 9. Verse 10 says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Okay, what does that mean? Jesus Christ is God's righteousness. We saw it in Romans last week. That Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled the law. And by fulfilling the law, He became the righteousness of God. And when the Bible says you got saved, what God does is He transfers that righteousness that He's got, and He gives it to you. And that's what it means when it says, down through there, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. It means that you believe uh, that, that God died for you. It means that you believe that He was the only, he, that He has God's righteousness. And the only way you're going to get it is through Him. And you've got to do whatever He says to get it. When you win somebody to Christ, when you lay salvation out to somebody, you better have four or five things firmly in place in your mind. And you better make sure that when you lay it out and you explain it, that you make sure they understand it. Leading somebody to Christ is something that is so precious. It's like if, I, if we were somewhere and I had a little bit of medical knowledge, which I don't, and we had a, a lady with us that was with child, and we're in a situation where she goes into labor and there's no way to go and I got to de deliver the baby. Let me tell you something, I'm going to be one nervous guy. Because there's so much I don't know about it. I mean, it looks simple. Get a catcher's mitt and stand there and let it come out. It doesn't work that way. What if the baby's turned? What if the cords around his neck? What if a thousand things that could go wrong do go wrong? And here I am with that silly look on my face. 
wondering what I'm going to do. Well, let me tell you something. It's just as perilous. And you need to be just as much as a trained physician when you bring a spiritual birth into this world. Because the complications will always be there. First thing you need to understand, you need to understand the concept of what we've already talked about, repentance. And that person needs to know, hey, if I'm winning somebody to Christ and I talk to them about the fact that, you know, and everybody's a different. When you get to that point and you talk to them about, are you going to turn for me and come to church and get involved? If they tell me no, we ain't going any farther. What's the point? I don't want to get you saved so badly that I'll just say, well, we'll just throw that out and you'll agree to the other two. Hello? You're wasting your time. They have to understand the concept of repentance, and that means you have to understand it. They have to believe that Christ's death on the cross is the only hope you have. They have to understand that what they're doing is they're doing the taking the terminology that we all talk about that nobody understands. You're getting Christ as your personal Savior. What does that mean? They have to understand that it's His blood that washes away your sin. When I work with somebody, I don't care what they are. If I want a Buddhist to Christ, and I had a young man or a young lady that was a Buddhist, and we're, I'm talking to them about salvation, and they want to, they send some interest to it, let me tell you something. Before I was done and got to the point down there where I told them about Jesus Christ, when we got to the point on repentance, you know what I'd have them do? I'd have them verbally tell me, I am, I am disavowing and disowning the Buddha faith, no uncertain terms. I'm never going back to the Buddha church. I'm dumping every Buddha idea. I'm trading in Buddha and his holy socks for a Jesus Christ with a holy nature. And if they wouldn't come to that point, you're wasting your time. Save your breath. You know why? Because that's the only thing that's going to be saved in this deal. You can't just win people to Christ like you're shooting skeet. You got to read the person. You got to know where they're coming from. You got to understand the person, another culture. They may only understand two or three words out of what you're saying. You throw concepts out and say, because you know them, they know them. Prepared servant and a prepared sinner. What we got is a lot of unprepared servants trying to be prepared servants. His blood is the only thing that will wash away your sin. The old song used to go, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. There's no religion that can get you saved. There's no church that can save you. There's no baptism that can save you. There's no works you can do. There's no good life you can lead. There's no amount of money you can pay. There's nothing you can try to do. And it's just simply based on the fact that you have to believe that when Christ died on the cross, he died there in your place. And the concept of a personal Savior is simply that. He didn't die for anybody. When I look at salvation, my salvation, you know how I look at it? I look at it, sorry about you guys. I wish he would have died for all of you. But he didn't. He died for me. Now, you all can sit there and say, well, you're out of your mind. He died for me. I'm sorry about you, Bob, and you'd be right. But I don't make my salvation experience a kumya ba la Lord effect. It was between me and him. And when he hung on the cross, I, care, I wasn't there. 
I can't prove it, but I know it in my depths of my heart. When he was there, when he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. When God was ready to come down and, and wipe out the whole world, he had Bob Alexander on his mind. He was thinking of me, lost and in hell, without hope, without any way of getting out. And he decided to stop God's hand from coming down and taking him off that cross and wiping out the world for Bob Alexander. I wish I could put your name in there. You have to put your name in there. You know why I love this book? You know why I study it? You know why I've invested my life? There's some more bad news for you. When he wrote this book, he wrote it to me. What are you doing with my book? You, you didn't ask my permission if you could read that. That's to me. That's mine. What are you doing with my Bible? Oh, what are you doing? This is my, he gave this to me. He didn't give it to you. See, you could sit right there and say, Bob, you're nuts. He gave it to me. He didn't give it to you. We could argue about that all day long. We'd both be right personal. Not some generic general God who just lives in a conception of people's deceived, confused minds. I'm talking about when you get a personal God in your life who wrote you a personal book, it'll change the very personal things of your life. And if it doesn't, oh boy, you better pull your dipstick out and take a look and see how low the oil is on it. Romans 3.23 says, For all come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There's none to do with good. No, not one. Uh, Isaiah 64.6 6 says, All of our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. Your coming as a guilty sinner is, has not a thing you can do about it to save you. Uh, and all your problems, everything you have, everything you deal with, every issue you have simply goes back to the fact that you need to be saved. I've seen little children Mom and daddy want little kids to get saved. You know what I believe why some of the teenagers and the adults that I've met in life are really not saved today? You know why I really believe it? And there's been men and, men and women in this church that came through that, that, I, that have got one to the Lord later on. You know why? Because I believe you wanted your kid to get saved so desperately that the first time that little kid came down and said, I want to be saved, or maybe the second time or the third time, that little boy, that little girl ran down and said, I want to be saved, or maybe the brothers got saved and the sisters got saved. He said, boy, it's a party. I want to go too. And you sat down and won that kid to Christ. And the bottom line is, if you would have said to that kid and sit down with him, Johnny, Tommy, Mary, Sue, why do you want to get saved? The answer would be, because I want to go to heaven with mom and daddy. And you know what? You lead them to Christ on that basis, and they're going to go straight to the lake of fire. A kid does not get saved because they want to go to heaven with mom and daddy. A kid gets saved because of the fact he's got a personal sin debt between him and God, an account that only he can pay, an account that has nothing to do with mom and dad. And he has to get to the point in his life where he realizes that. And every time you take a little child who doesn't realize that, push the issue and get in there before he's ready, and don't let sin become exceedingly sinful, as Romans chapter 7 says, when Paul dealing about his own youthful conversion, you mark that kid and he goes through his life wondering, why don't I have this? Why can't I get this? What out of that? And either he goes back into the world or he lives a lie all of his life and winds up going to the lake of fire. And someday, you know what the tragedy is? Most of the mom and dads who do that are saved. They just don't know anything about salvation. I had a man one time said, oh, I need to get saved. And I said, yeah, I know you do. I said, why do you? And we got down on their knees and I said, I want to win you to cry. I said, why do you want to get saved? He said, because my marriage is a mess and I want to get my marriage back together. I said, that's not why you get saved. I said, you know what, I'm going to tell you right now. You may get saved and God may not put your marriage back. You don't get saved because you want your marriage fixed. You get saved because you've got a personal sin debt. Someday you're going to split hell wide open if you don't take care of your personal account of your sin to God. Your marriage has nothing to do with it. Oh, we get confused, don't we? 
we get confused. We do. How did God say, well, I need to get saved so I can stop drinking? That ain't the reason to get saved. You get saved because you're going to split hell wide open. It says, if thou believe with your heart under righteousness, willing to repent. And that's the key. Then the last thing he says here is this. And with a mouse, confession is made unto salvation. Basically, after you understand the act of repentance and believing on righteousness with your heart, then you act on it. It's a lot like this. And I use this example all the time when I'm winning people to Christ. I get them to a point, and I work them very slowly. Everybody works them differently. And I work them very slowly, and I bring them to the point where I get them to hear, and I get them to believe with their heart. And I always give them this illustration. I say, you know what? Now the Bible says that you have to confess with your mouth. And I said, let me, let me tell you. Let's look at it like this. If I won the lottery this afternoon, and I won $100 million, and you came in to me, and, and you told me you had all kinds of problems and all kinds of things, and I thought to myself, boy, here's a great guy to help. So I took my checkbook, and I, and I, just, won, I just won $100 million, and I wrote you a check for $1 million, and I put your name on it. I even signed it, and I gave you that check. I said, you would go out of here, and you'd be the happiest guy in the world. You would call your wife. Maybe you wouldn't call your wife. I don't know. <laughs> but you would, you would be so happy, and you'd be so thrilled because you had a million-dollar check from Bob Alexander. But you know the truth of the matter is? Until you go to the bank and cash it, you really don't have the money. And I tell people, you can know all about Christ. You can believe with Him in your heart. You can believe that He died for you on the cross. You can believe everything about it you're supposed to believe. But until you open your mouth and cash the check, you really don't have Him. And you know what confessing with your mouth is? It's just simply acting on what you already believe. And I, I'm, I'm not such a fool if I think that it's just mouth. We, re, we, we relate to this because we see this flapping all the time and we hear us talk. But, you know, you ever look at Luke chapter 16 where Tabitha took us the other night in Bible study and you saw that rich man in hell? You ever notice that rich man? He had a mouth. He had a tongue. He had eyes. He had ears. He could remember. He had hands. He even wanted water. He could even talk. It's the mouth of your soul. It's the mouth of your soul. You can be saved if your soul cries out to Jesus Christ, even if your mouth doesn't. But it, 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 isn't about, it isn't about the physical thing. And we relate to that. So we talk about that. And we use that. And you ask you to verbalize the prayer. But that's just for your sake. That's just the opening to get to your soul. It's the, really the reaching up and crying out of your soul. And your mouth of your soul, which is in debt and trespasses of sin, crying out for God, believing in your heart what He did for you. And then God saving you. You see, we've been deceived. We've been deceived. 11, 12, and 13 says, For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And then a great verse, and I end with this. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God will save anybody. God wants to save you, but it takes repentance. It takes you believing in your heart of Him for righteousness and in confession with your mouth. And the greatest thing about salvation I think most people struggle with is how easy it is. I won people to Christ and they said, got all there is to it? I said, no, the fireworks are going to start here any minute. Now just hang down. The angels are lighting the fuse, you know. Let me tell you about salvation and listen to this because you're going to have to use this a lot. 
when you win people to Christ and they ask Christ to come in their heart to save them, sometimes they cry. Sometimes they cry a lot. Sometimes they just cry a little bit. Sometimes they don't cry at all. Sometimes they'll go, like the weight of the world has been taken off their shoulder. Sometimes they won't have any expression at all. Sometimes they'll laugh. Sometimes they'll look at you and hug you and grab you and pull you over the table and they'll break your back. Sometimes they'll just look at you and say thank you. We as human beings always, and this is another part of deception, you're not saved. Now listen to me. You are not saved based on how you feel about it. You're not saved based on the experience that you had. Well, I saw, I went to church one time and saw this person run down the aisle and slipped in the snot and people were all over the place and wailing and crying. Well, if, you know what? And I didn't have that, so I must not be saved. Don't ever judge it on that. Salvation. No matter what your feeling or your emotional is about it, and everybody's different because we're all different people. I watch some of you go to the ball games or the football games, some of you are fanatics. Others just sit there and, me, I'm looking for the hot dog guy. <laughs> Everybody's different. Everybody's different. Salvation is never based on how you feel about it. Salvation is clearly based on the promises and the principles in the Word of God that God told you. He told you that if you'd repent, He told if you believe in your heart that God died for you and He did for you what He said He did, and then if you confessed with your mouth based on what you believe, based on your obedience to repent, that God would save you. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's just the truth of the Word of God. We need, and I'm not saying feelings are bad, but I'm saying don't ever let your feelings override the truth of the Word of God because the Word of God should project your feelings, not the other way around. Every head bowed and every eye closed.